choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Godspeed, John Glenn. Roger, zero G, and I feel fine. Can I feel out? Okay, I'm out. How does it feel for the United States to be the new record holder? At last, huh? Hello and welcome. This is Michael Annis and you're listening to episode 287 of the Space Rocket History Podcast. And now, Apollo 13, Separation Anxiety. Good evening. The crippled Apollo 13 spacecraft is winding up its final full day in space tonight, apparently on course for a Pacific Ocean splashdown around 1.07 p.m. Eastern Time tomorrow, 555 miles southeast of Samoa. The latest word is that there are ample supplies of water, oxygen, power, and other consumables. The astronauts themselves are of reasonably good cheer, but when they must work in the command module, they are cold. It's down to around 45 degrees, and they are sleeping huddled together in the warmer lunar module. Each moment that ticks away is another in which nothing more has gone wrong to endanger their lives. The next critical moments come tomorrow morning. Just about 7 a.m. Eastern Time, they'll climb back into their command ship and once again turn its power on, power that has been down except for intermittent tests since Monday night's explosion. That power has to work, and the astronauts will breathe easier when it does. Then just before 8.30 a.m., they'll jettison the long dead service module, and two and a half hours later, the lunar module that has been their lifeboat back from the moon. Friday, April 17, 1970. Three hours before dawn, Gene Krantz's white team took its place next to Wendler's maroon team controllers. The 80 hours of uncertainty were now past, and mission control was down to Apollo 13's final shift. As the sun came up on Friday, the street in front of Jim Lovell's house began to fill with reporters and cameras. Inside the Lovell home, friends, family members, and astronauts arrived. Jim's mother, Blanche, who was residing in a nursing home, was among the first to enter. She was cheerful and upbeat, anticipating her son's return from the moon with the same optimism she had felt the previous times he had flown into space. Marilyn Lovell had still not told her mother-in-law about the troubled flight of Apollo 13, and she wasn't going to now. To make this as easy as possible, Marilyn decided that Blanche would watch the recovery from a television set in the den far enough away from the family room where the other guests would watch. Thus, Blanche would be protected from any casual comments that other guests in the house might make. As for disturbing remarks made by newsmen on TV, Marilyn thought that somebody would simply have to remain with her mother-in-law to distract her attention or explain things away if the on-screen commentary became too ominous. Before Blanche arrived, no one had yet been assigned this job, but when she was at last helped through the front door, Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin stepped forward. As the two astronauts settled down in front of the TV in the den, with Blanche Lovell 
it seemed their job would not be an easy one. On the television, an interview with Apollo 12 moonwalker Alan Bean appeared. And here's one of the men who was aboard the last time, Captain Alan Bean, astronaut on Apollo 12. Now, have I said that correctly? You sure have, and um, it looks like that the five hours jettison for the service module and the one hour for the lamb will give us plenty of time to uh, work any other checks we have in, plenty of time. All right, now the command module has been without power since Monday night, yes. except for brief periods. Uh, do we have any guarantee that this cold, powerless ship can be powered up enough so that it can perform the tasks it has to perform? Yes, we do. North American has been running a number of tests, as we have here, taking a look at the temperatures that are on the electrical system and many of the components, and determining, uh, and have determined, in fact, that uh, they'll be able to be warmed up sufficiently to uh, do the job they're designed to do. So that looks like a pretty straightforward uh, job right now. What about the relationship between this, this is the part of the spacecraft where the trouble began on Monday night, and when it moves away from the heat shield, the porous heat shield, is it likely to leave any particles, any broken particles there near the heat shield which could cause trouble on re-entry? Uh, not really. Um, you may remember that all the uh, electrical wiring and everything that separates the command module from the service module is in the command module. And as far as we know, absolutely nothing has gone wrong there. So the separation ought to take place in a completely nominal fashion. Even if there were small particles on the base of the heat shield, it wouldn't affect the command module during re-entry. There's quite a lot of uh, uh, extra heat shield built in just for such a... And do you see any problems in separating and getting two astronauts out of here and all three of them into the command module and separating the command module from the lamp? No, mainly because this is, we're going to use the same techniques we've used around the moon a number of times and certainly in Earth orbit. So uh, powering down the limb, getting inside, closing the hatch, and actually uh, blowing the uh, limb away from the command module is typically uh, a nominal maneuver. Incidentally, and I think a good point is, the minute that the limb moves away from the command module, we've got at about an hour out, a no longer any emergency situation. We're in the situation we've always been in when returning from the moon. With enough power in here so that you are back as you were on Apollo 12. That's right. In. So then it's a normal re-entry. That's right. The, mer the emergency for all cases is over once we separate the command module from Nevertheless, the it's never been done before this way, <laughs> and everybody's worried. I, are you worried? Uh, no. Uh, we've been doing a lot of simulation here of the techniques that we're going to use here. The crew has demonstrated that they're cool under the worst possible conditions, and the flight controllers have demonstrated the same thing. So I think that tomorrow is going to run rather smoothly. It'll be almost a routine uh, re-entry, if that's the word. In front of the television, Armstrong and Aldrin flinched a bit at the words emergency situation, and they looked worriedly at Blanche. But if she heard anything concerning, she didn't show it. She just turned to the astronauts and smiled. Armstrong and Aldrin smiled back. Out in the family room, Marilyn watched the same broadcast, but responded to it very differently. Alan Bean might say the upcoming re-entry would be like any other, but Bean, Marilyn believed, knew better. No other command module had ever taken the beating this one had taken, and no other crew had ever been through so much improvised work on so little rest. In space, 
at 137 hours 39 minutes elapsed time, the moment had arrived to make the final mid-course correction to place Apollo 13 back into the center of the re-entry corridor. Fortunately, it would only require a short burn from the four limb thrusters that had been working flawlessly for five days. Nevertheless, the burn was absolutely essential if the crew was going to survive re-entry. Shortly before 7 a.m. Houston time, Lovell fired his maneuvering jets. Okay, Houston, about three minutes to go. We're all straight away. Less than two minutes away now from scheduled time of ignition. We're at 137 hours, 38 minutes in the flight. One minute away now. Ten seconds away now. Okay, it looks like we're at a minus uh, 0.2 bias, the 470, we're burning. Copy that, Fred. Fred Hayes reporting that the burn is underway. We're at 137 hours, 40 minutes into the flight. Wave shut down. Okay, that's it. Okay, if you're happy, uh, can we maneuver to uh, service module 7 attitude now? That's affirmative, Aquarius. That was Fred Hayes uh, requesting the 13 maneuver to uh, service module separation attitude uh, following this, uh, this burn, which looked uh, right on the money. With a successful burn completed, it was time for perhaps the trickiest maneuver of the day, jettisoning the service module. Our countdown clock shows that we're uh, 19 minutes away now from time of separation, service module uh, jettison. For this, uh, Jack Swigert uh, is in the command module, uh, Jim Lovell, uh, Fred Hayes in the lunar module. Commander Lovell will fire the uh, thrusters, or fire the thrust, uh, limb thrust, to uh, push the service module at uh, one half foot per second. Uh, Swigert uh, activates the powers with a switch in the command module. After separation, uh, 13 will back off with the uh, lunar module RCS at one half foot per second, providing the separation uh, delta velocity of one foot per second. We're at uh, 137 hours, 52 minutes into the flight, and Apollo 13, uh, 36,660 nautical miles away. This is Apollo Control, Houston. In the spacecraft, Lovell, Hayes, and Swigert were in their usual positions, all awake and all feeling reasonably alert. Then, Deke Slayton came over the radio. Hey, uh, Jim, have you broken into the uh, medical kit for my uh, recommendation a few hours ago? Okay, fine. You might hit it again in about uh, two hours. Okay. What Lovell didn't tell Slayton was he had decided against the Dexedrine tablets Slayton had prescribed for his crew last night, knowing that the lift from the stimulants would be fleeting and the subsequent letdown would leave them feeling even worse than they did now. 
For the time being, Lovell decided the astronauts would get by on adrenaline alone. Next, Houston read up the attitudes and angles for separation of the service module, and Jim made the adjustments. The uh, guidance and control uh, officer for the lunar module here in mission control uh, confirms they're moving in this attitude now for separation. The plan was for Jim to execute a push of 0.5 feet per second with four thrusters from the limb, and then have Jack perform the separation then execute a pull at about the same 0.5 feet per second in the opposite direction. Since everyone seemed ready, Lovell asked if he could execute the maneuver at his own discretion. Can we do it at any time, Joe? I think so, but let me check. Aquarius Houston, uh, that's affirmative. You can uh, jettison the service module when you're ready. No big rush, but uh, anytime. With clearance from the ground to proceed, Swigert moved up the tunnel into Odyssey and took his position in front of the jettison switches in the center of the instrument panel. Lovell and Hayes then went to their windows. Near each of their stations, the three men had already left cameras floating in the hope of photographing the service module's presumably blast-damaged exterior. Swigert had already taken the precaution of wiping Odyssey's five windows clear of condensation to provide an unobscured view of the outside. Lovell shouted up the tunnel, Jack, you ready? All set when you guys are, the call came back. All right, I'll give you a five count, and on zero, I'll hit the thrusters. When you feel the motion, let her go. Swigert shouted out a roger reached over from his left hand and picked up his Hasselblad camera, then positioned the index finger of his right hand over the service module jettison switch. His paper, with the word no, flapped to the left of it. Lovell, in the limb, took his camera in his left hand and his thruster control in his right. Hayes picked up his camera as well. Five, Lovell called up the tunnel. Four, three, two, one. Zero. The commander eased his control upward, activating the jets and nudging the two spacecraft's stack into motion. In the command module, Swigert responded immediately, snapping the service module switch. Jettison, he sang out. All three crewmen heard a dull, explosive pop and felt a simultaneous jolt. Lovell then pulled down on the controller, activating an opposite set of nozzles and reversing course. Maneuver complete, he called. That's that, that. Copy that. We copied that report uh, from Jim Lovell of service module separation at uh, 138 hours, uh, 2 minutes, 8 seconds. At their separate windows, Lovell, Swigert, and Hayes leaned anxiously forward, raised their cameras, and looked outside. Swigert had chosen the big round hatch window in the center of the spacecraft, but pressing his nose against it now, he saw nothing. Jumping to his left, he peered out Lovell's window, and there, too, saw nothing at all. Scrambling across to the other side of the spacecraft, he banged into Hayes' porthole, scanned as far as the limited time frame would allow him, and there, too, came up empty. Nothing, he yelled down the tunnel. Nothing! 
Lovell, at his triangular window, swiveled his head from side to side, also saw nothing, and looked over to Hayes, who was searching frantically and finding just as little. Cursing under his breath, Lovell turned back to his glass and all at once saw it. Gliding into the upper left-hand corner of the pane was a mammoth silver mass moving as silently and smoothly and hugely as a battleship. He opened up his mouth to say something, but nothing came out. The service module moved directly in front of the window, filling it completely. Receding ever so slightly, it began to roll, displaying one of the riveted panels that made up its curved flank. Drifting away a little more, it rolled a little more, revealing another panel. Then, after another second, Lovell saw something that made his eyes widen. Just as the mammoth silver cylinder caught an especially bright splash of sun, it rolled a few more degrees and revealed the spot where panel four was or should have been. In its place was a wound, a raw gaping wound running from one end of the service module to the other. Panel four, which made up about a sixth of the ship's external skin, was designed to operate like a door, swinging open to provide technicians access to its mechanical entrails, and sealing shut when it came time for launch. Now it appeared that the entire door was gone, ripped free and blasted away from the ship. Trailing from the gash left behind were sparkling shreds of mylar insulation, waving tangles of torn wire, tendrils of rubber liner. Inside the wound were the ship's vitals, its fuel cells, its hydrogen tanks, the arterial array of pipes that connected them, and on the second shelf of the compartment where oxygen tank 2 was supposed to be, Lovell saw, to his astonishment, a large charred space and absolutely nothing else. Lovell grabbed Hayes's arm, shook it, and pointed. Hayes followed Lovell's finger, saw what his senior pilot saw, and his eyes, too, went wide. From behind Lovell and Hayes, Swigert swam frantically down the tunnel, holding his Hasselblad. Okay, I've got her, Roger. And there's one whole side of that spacecraft missing. Is that right? Right by the, uh, look out there, would you? Right by the high gate antenna, the whole panel is blown out, almost from the uh, base to the uh, engine. Copy that. Yeah, it looks like it got to the uh, SPS bell, too, is it? It could ding the SPS engine bell, huh? Wait, look, that's, that's uh, just dark brown streak. Really a you heard that report from uh, Jim Lovell as uh, Aquarius is moving away from the uh, service module at the present time. Some pictures, but we want you to conserve RCS so uh, don't make unnecessary. With that transmission, Lovell shook himself and realized that pictures were a part of the purpose of this exercise and so far his crew hadn't gotten any. Already, the blast-damaged Hulk was drifting away. Moving to his left, Lovell grabbed Swigert by the arm and pulled him to the window. The command module pilot immediately began shooting frame after frame through his telephoto lens. In the small patch of window left to him, Lovell set up his camera and began snapping just as frantically, 
On the right side of the ship, haze also snapped away. The crew followed the module until it had faded out of sight. Man, that's unbelievable. Yeah, and Joe, it looks like a lot of, uh, a lot of debris is just hanging out to the side uh, near the S-band antenna. Roger, Jim. As the crew described the condition of the service module, Flight Director Krantz listened intently. He was relieved that he, Kraft, and Lunny decided not to trust the service module engine to bring the astronauts home. It's Apollo Control, Houston, uh, 138 hours, uh, 15 minutes now into the mission. Apollo 13 presently 34,350 nautical miles out from Earth traveling at a speed of 10,607 feet per second. Meanwhile, in the uh, Mission Control Center, uh, the crowd is, is beginning to increase. Uh, already here, uh, Dr. Thomas Payne, uh, NASA Administrator, Mr. George Lowe, uh, NASA Deputy Administrator, Representative uh, George Miller from California, Chairman of the House Space Committee, Representative Olin Teague uh, of Texas. Continuing with um, those present in the control center now, our Representative uh, Jerry Pettis of California. General Phillips, uh, who was previously the uh, Apollo program director. George Miller, also a NASA alumni, uh, formerly uh, Associate Administrator uh, for Manned Space Flight. Dave Scott, uh, Rusty Schweikert are among the astronauts in the viewing room at the present time, along with uh, Buzz Aldrin. Dr. Ebert Hart Reese, uh, Director of the Marshall Space Flight Center, is uh, in the viewing room, as is Dale Myers, uh, Associate Administrator for Manned Space Flight uh, at present. Mr. Walter Caprian, uh, Director of Launch Operations at Kennedy Space Center. Doctor, uh, or Mr. or Dr. Kurt Debus, uh, Director of uh, Kennedy Space Center, is in the viewing room. As is uh, Lou Evans, uh, President of Grumman. Needless to say, all of the distinguished visitors uh, in the control center were most interested in the report uh, from Apollo 13 of the service module con condition. as um, the 13 crew um, moved away following the jettison. By 10 a.m. Houston time, a large group had gathered around the ECOM station. Just three hours from splashdown, it was time to power up the command module. Of course, John Aaron had been there since 4 a.m. Cy Liebregat showed up the first, pulled up a chair and sat down at Aaron's left. Clint Burton, the black team ECOM, joined them, foregoing a chair and standing behind Aaron. Charlie Dumas of the Maroon team arrived and stood behind Librigat. At most of the other consoles, at least one other member of another team hovered next to the white team controller on duty, but only at the ECOM console was the full complement of engineers present. Aquarius Houston. Go ahead. Okay, uh, your go to start uh, powering up the command module. Right now, we're starting now. Okay. In the cockpit of Aquarius, Lovell looked at Swigert and motioned him to the tunnel. 
Unlike the reading of the power-up checklist 14 hours earlier, the execution of the list would be a simple matter, requiring less than half an hour of work by the command module pilot. As the first switch was thrown, sending a surge of power through the long, cold wires, Lovell braced for a pop and sizzle, indicating that the condensation soaking the instrument panel had found an unprotected switch or junction and shorted the ship right back out. It was a sound he had first heard over the Sea of Japan, and one he dearly hoped he would never hear again. But as the power-up in the cockpit proceeded, all the astronauts heard was the reassuring hum and gurgle, indicating that their spacecraft was coming back to life. However, there was some drama with the power-up. Not in the spacecraft, but at John Aaron's ECOM station. Aaron had calculated that the ship could afford to pull no more than 43 amps of current if it was going to function for the full two hours of re-entry. However, Aaron would not know how much power was being used until the telemetry was turned on after the command module had completely powered up and the data started streaming back from the ship. If it turned out that Odyssey was consuming more than 43 amps, even for a short time, there was a real chance its batteries would be exhausted before it ever hit the ocean. About 20 minutes into the power-up, telemetry finally materialized on Ecom's screen, but the number that appeared was 45 amps. A shocked John Aaron immediately began searching for where the extra two amps were being drawn. His fellow controllers gathered at his station had no idea what the problem was. First, Aaron ordered his back room to run through the checklist to see what was left on. Next, Aaron solicited help from guidance and navigation to track down the two rogue amps. As Aaron talked with his GNC, Libergot, Dumas, and Burton fanned out through the first three rows of mission control to see if any of the other controllers might have left any instrument on that shouldn't have been. Even before those men could respond, however, Aaron's back room found the problem. The backup gyros, or BMAGs, were left on. Capcom Joe Kerwin relayed instructions up to Odyssey and swaggered through the switch to turn off the BMAGs. The readout on the ECOM screen dropped back down to 43 amps, but it was too late. A few of Odyssey's precious amps were gone for good. Salutations from the Lone Star State. This is Michael Annis, your host, and I wanted to say thanks for listening to episode number 287 of the Space Rocket History Podcast, entitled Apollo 13, Separation Anxiety. I hope you enjoyed this episode. It was a pleasure bringing it to you. I want to give a big shout out to all my listeners. Thanks for staying subscribed and extend a warm welcome to my new listeners. I'm glad you're here. Are you looking for old episodes of the podcast? The first 112 episodes are available on the Archive podcast. Search for Space Rocket History Archive. It should be available on all podcatchers. Today, we salute my Rocket Emoji donors. These donors have donated for at least two years in a row and receive a Rocket Emoji next to their name on the donors list. 
Thank you, Rocket Emoji donors, for your continued support. My sources for this episode were Lost Moon by Jim Lovell, A Man on the Moon by Andrew Chaikin, Failure is Not an Option by Gene Krantz, Flight by Chris Kraft, the NASA Apollo 13 Technical Air-to-Ground Voice Transcription, the Internet Archive, Wikipedia, and the Johnson Space Center. Well, we are coming down to the final episodes of Apollo 13. I think I've spent more time on Apollo 13 than any flight, but there was a lot going on there. One of my major goals for the podcast was completing Apollo 13, and I'm excited to be almost finished with that goal. In case you're wondering what comes next, as most of you know, the podcast is based on a timeline, and we're currently in the year 1970. Following Apollo 13, we will continue covering the significant space events that occurred in 1970. These will be Soviet missions. Then, we will move on to 1971 and Apollo 14. And I'm looking forward to getting to Apollo 14. Okay, I have placed the audio and some pictures for this episode on the homepage, spacerockethistory.com. Please check that out. We were pleased to receive several donations to support the podcast over the past two weeks. Craig R. from Michigan donated at the Orion level and earned his satellite emoji. Steve G. donated at the Orion level and earned his moon emoji. Matthew B. from the UK donated at the Apollo level and earned his galaxy emoji. Matthew P. from the UK donated at the Gemini level and earned his moon emoji. Nicholas L. from Canada donated at the Soyuz level. Charles C. from Texas donated at the Soyuz level and earned a rocket emoji. Christopher L. from Australia donated at the Mercury level and earned his satellite emoji. Jeff O. donated at the Mercury level and earned his moon emoji. Killian M. from Germany donated at the Vostok level and earned a moon emoji. Mylene M. from California donated at the Vostok level and earned a moon emoji. Sven B. from Australia donated at the Vostok level. Toby W. from Germany donated at the Sputnik level. Futurama King donated at the Sputnik level and earned his galaxy emoji. Martin G. from the UK increased his pledge on Patreon to the Mir ISS level with rocket emoji. Mark W. pledged on Patreon at the Apollo level. Ben R. pledged on Patreon at the Mercury level. Jeremy Smith pledged on Patreon at the Apollo level in honor of his oasiscafe.org art project. What is the oasiscafe.org project? As you know, the 50th anniversary of the Apollo 11 landing will occur in July of this year, and Jeremy's project will be a roughly-to-scale artistic representation of the Apollo Lunar Module. It will be on public display through the summer, and it will be an installation at Utah's Element 11 Festival and Burning Man in 2019. Please check out Jeremy's website at oasiscafe.org. Okay, our Patreon total so far this year is 217. That's what we were a couple weeks ago. We lost some and gained some. The goal is to reach 300 by the end of the year. Our total donors for 2019 have reached 254, with a goal of reaching 600 before the end of 2019. For those of you who are enjoying the content provided here, please consider supporting the podcast if you're financially able. We are entirely listener-supported. To support the podcast, go to the homepage, spacerockethistory.com. Click on the orange donate button. 
to make a one-time donation or the Patreon link to make small monthly donations. All donors are rewarded with their name on the donors page at the level they choose to donate. For the 254 of you who have already donated for 2019, I certainly appreciate it. This week we're giving away the SRH logo magnet to one of our lucky donors. Mrs. SRH randomly selected Andrew Richards. That's Andrew Richards. If you would email me, mike at spacerockethistory.com, and tell me your address, I will mail this out to you. Okay, folks, that's all I have for this week. I'll try to have episode 288 posted by next Thursday. So long for now.